Rosa Maurice Clark, Communications at Crossref. We just had our Live 19 meeting in Amsterdam, and we asked several attendees their opinion. After listening to Jenny's talk about the value of Crossref, and Ed's talk presenting lots of new data, what most surprised them, and what key challenge they think faces Crossref in the future. I'm Heather Staines. I'm the head of partnerships for the MIT Knowledge Futures Group. Uh, we build open source software for publishers, researchers, and libraries. I thought I had a reasonably good understanding of the variety of Crossref initiatives, but wow, I, it's so daunting to think about all the different areas and collaborations that are happening. So yeah, I'm, my mind is blown. Hi, I'm Christine Ferguson. I work on the literature services team at Emble EBI. So Europe PMC is the closest team. Um, that we work for and we're clients or customers or members of Crossref. The most surprising thing I learned today is um, the interest in organization identifiers and grant identifiers. Those are two things that have been um, hugely important at um, Europe PMC and things that we've been working on to implement as members of the Freya project. So it's just quite surprising to see the amount of interest outside of the Freya project in these two persistent identifiers. I'm Dan Smith, um, I'm a data analyst at the Wellcome Trust which is a funder based in London. I guess just how diverse the membership actually is. Um, I guess as a funder we only see really one side of what Crestref offers. Um, but it's interesting to see how the yeah, it relates to the kind of like publisher, the actual researcher, the scientist side as well. So I think yeah, the diversity of yeah, membership. Hi, I'm Jamie McKee with Autumn. We have a platform called Proposal Central which supports uh, over 100 research funding organizations in their funding process. I think the most surprising thing that I learned uh, about Crossref today is uh, how they are able to get fierce competitors to collaborate. Um, that majority of the revenue comes from small memberships um, and the sheer size of the organization. I knew it was large, but you know, close to 11,000 members. That's, that's, the reach is phenomenal. My name is Lisa Schiff. I'm the Associate Director for Publishing and Special Collections at the California Digital Library at the University of California. I, I wasn't really surprised by anything. Um, I thought it was a really uh, nice overview of the different uh, perspectives and issues that Crossref is facing. Um, and that's kind of what I hoped for and expected from this meeting, so. Maxim Mitrofanov from National Electronic Information Consortium from Russia. What is the most surprising thing about Crossref today? Um, I guess that the most surprising thing is that so many people from different regions of the world are so dedicated to the idea of the data sharing. Uh, in my region, we had to teach and educate people for over four years and explaining and teaching them how data sharing is important for uh, uh, publishers and for uh, scientists. And I see this process had a great future. My name is uh, Christian Guknecht. I work for the Swiss National Science Foundation. Maybe that the open access issue is still a huge debate coming up between the, the members, although I think uh, Crossref and registering DOIs and metadata could be totally agnostic from this question. 
So my name is Mohammed Mustafa. I am Open Access Publishing Editor. I work in a company named Knowledge E based in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. The most surprising thing about Crossref that I learned today is that 60% of the revenue is coming from the content registration. So this was surprising note for me that the content re registration service is one of the almost the, the biggest stream for Crossref revenue. My name is Alexander Amnajin. I'm a sponsoring member in Internauka, Ukraine, key of Ukraine. The most surprising thing I learned today would probably be the speed in which the Crossref growed as a platform or as a community. Just looking at the data which was provided today, it's amazing to see how many new projects and what a core base it has built since the beginning. I'm Duncan Campbell, I'm from John Wiley & Sons. I was quite interested to see the actual spread of revenues across members and the splits between large and small, which I have kind of known but I haven't seen articulated so kind of um, uh, concretely. So I'm Lauren Danahy, um, I work for Brill, I manage our data team. Most surprising was the explosive growth of revenue from small publishers. Um, and um, in, in a very short time. Hi, I'm Vanessa Dubuga. I'm the International Sales and Marketing Manager of Amsterdam University Press. This is my first Crossref meeting that I've attended and I think the surprising thing is, is that I feel part of a community and I had no idea. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gareth Malcolm from Turn It In and I'm answering the question about what is the biggest challenge for Crossref. And from what I've heard today, I think uh, what's really interesting is uh, how much, uh, how difficult it is for all these different organisations that use Crossref to come to a consensus on how to move forward. So yeah, definitely the biggest challenge is going to be about everybody coming together and deciding what the next steps are. I think it's communication um, across the members of Crossref. So there are publishers and then there are users of um, Crossref's metadata and some are quite disparate so a lot of it's linked to publishing but there are a lot of members there who who aren't necessarily in the loop and maybe one meeting a year is enough to bridge those gaps um, in communication about where where the community is at and what's happening but um, it seems that a lot there are lots of unknowns and lots of talks that could have been included to make some of the points more keenly that were made today. I think the biggest challenge is to figure out how Crossref can best serve the needs and interests of an increasingly heterogeneous membership community. I think managing that diversity is the yeah the biggest <laughs> the biggest challenge. Uh, and we, we have that in terms of as a funder the kind of like schemes we offer. We're really diverse in what we fund, and that does create a lot of operational complexity. Um, and it does put different demands from different people on us. So yeah, it's just managing that kind of like breadth, really. Um, balancing the needs of your um, small, diverse, large membership along with your large revenue-paying members, I can see why um, that's going to be an ongoing challenge. The biggest challenge I think facing Crossref now is how to decide what the right funding model looks like to support them and how that maps to the set of services that they offer to, the, to those customers. There is more and more information in the world and so there is more and more data Crossref has to work on every day. And uh, this is great job that Nikon is doing at the, uh, that uh, Crossref uh, Cross is doing at the moment. So I think that 
make technically everything rolling on perfectly is one of the biggest challenges Crossref can face. And the rest, the future will show. The great idea of data sharing uh, shows that it is great and alive. As we heard this kind of technical depth you, you, you see in the, your infrastructure, I, I assume this is hard to, to uh, tackle. And then, of course, this kind of um, completeness and, and richness of metadata, as we have seen, like, like abstracts or citations, which I think more could be done, also funding information, which I assume mostly is because of uh, publishers are not so aware of that this, this, these possibilities. As Crossref uh, members are growing around, reaching now around 11,000 members, with all this diversity between small members and medium and big size members, how Crossref will be able to serve all these members with all the diversity and different needs between the large members and the small members. So how Crossref will be able to uh, sustain and provide the same level of services to all these different members. I think the biggest challenge for Crossref is to maintain uh, the, I would say it's like a pipeline or the platform and to maintain the stability of, it, of its core functions as well as prioritize the new projects um, to which, which should be done first and then the second because the amount of which is I think rather big at the moment. I think their biggest challenge is to accommodate the smaller and medium-sized um, members, publishers, um, because they have so many partners to cater to at the moment and that is only growing and it's very hard for these small and medium-sized um, publishers to actually um, do the work and get the meta metadata out there to, in these different formats to these different partners. I think it's reconciling the interests of those different member types, to be honest, once you see the sort of the numbers and the way they spread. How, how in the future of the organisation does Crossref manage um, to serve the needs and interests of both sets of groups and also I think as Todd said on uh, yesterday, sorry it's been a long meeting, it's felt like a long meeting, as, as Todd said the other day, um, it's about is it a question of scholarly infrastructure or publishing services and how, how does Crossref manage those needs across a whole range of very, very diverse publisher types. Well, given the types of things that I've been thinking about recently in my new role, I think it's going to be um, the, the distributed ecosystem that we're operating in where it's become impossible for, you know, one organization or even a number, a small number of organizations to manage things like identifiers and linking. And so how do we move from an era where even as a publisher, there was a reasonable expectation that you had a final product and now you have the final article, the data, the preprint, we have other copies. So I think how we, how we move forward into a distrib distributed ecosystem is going to be the biggest challenge. And there's a lot of pieces to that, but I'll use that as a big one. After that last session, prioritization of all of the wishes. As the community changes, I can imagine that only gets more difficult. So we've got, um, we're going to be starting 
uh, with uh, Todd Toller from Wiley, uh, who's going to represent the sort of perspective of large publishers. Uh, a lot of the publishers who are, uh, as, as have been pointed out by Ginny and, and Ed, uh, who are our founders. Um, and then we're going to have Katrina McCullum from Hindawi talking uh, from the medium publisher perspective. And then um, uh, from the small publisher perspective, Annie, Anna Danivola. Um, and, um, and then we're going to switch it around and talk to some people who are, are, are not necessarily members, but who use our services and, and uh, either find them valuable or not. I guess we find that out. Um, and we're going to find, uh, listen from a research funder, Christian uh, Gutnick um, from the Swiss National Science Foundation. And, um, and then uh, from an academic group, Luda Waltman uh, from the University of Leiden. So in, in that order. Um, what I'm going to do, just so that everybody's aware of what's going on here, and is I'm going to be there with a timer, um, letting them know how much time they've got, and they can see me there. Um, and um, if they go over, that thing in the corner is a laser cannon. Um, <laughs> and we take this thing kind of seriously. All right. So, uh, so Todd, uh, I guess you're first, and take it away. And oh, also, the laser cannon has a hair trigger, so if you do say something upsetting, you know. Great. All right. I guess I better. I'm going to go fast. It'll be like a Ramon show, like a really boring Ramon show. Um, so my name's Todd Toller from Wiley, direct, uh, Vice President of Product Strategy and Partnerships. Uh, my background, user experience, product management. I've really been thinking about sort of post-print journal workflows. I'll admit right now I'm very journal-centric. So as I go through this, uh, I may be biased in that direction. Um, I'm standing for the board. Uh, this election, and in preparation for that, I kind of reached out to some of the other large houses and kind of collected our opinions um, so that I could share them with you and get a little more sense of the history of Crossref. And this is kind of the, this is the summary of the opinion uh, that we sort of came up with. But, but originally, you know, Crossref was the publisher's linking service, and it's evolved to be, a, to basically occupy a unique position due to its scale um, and how it's evolved with all of its stakeholders and its essential uh, place in the scholarly infrastructure. And I wanted to say right now that we recognize this. We understand Crossref's potential for the future and that it's different from how it was started. Um, but because of disruption from outside the world of publishing, so when I, you know, I think about disruption to publishing, I don't think of other publishers. You know, increasingly, we have more need to work together on common infrastructure and standards. It's more than ever. I think of publishers almost like airlines, and we need airports that have common infrastructure for, this, for the sake of our customers. We don't each need to have our own baggage handling facilities. Uh, and you know, we, we, really, we really need to focus on this to remain competitive due to outside threats. And this is really driving a lot of new behaviors about how we're, how we're all working together. And then another just background point here is that the economics of STM publishing are changing dramatically. And this is due to the demands of open science and open access in particular. So the reality is that the publishing industry has a mix of business models. So we can talk about open access, but it will be a mix of business models for the foreseeable future. And I think we need to focus on what are the common needs of publishers, not just large like I'm up here representing, but all of us. Because one thing that I can say definitively is that publishers need and want efficient processes that are agnostic of business models and that, serves our, that serve our interests. 
So one of the big challenges we face, especially the large publishers, because we have very diverse business models and diverse portfolios, is that the volume and sort of nature of what we need to put out in terms of our output is changing. It's intensifying. We need to produce more of it. And it's getting more complicated to create. But the economics of the business are basically worsening. Um, a simple way of saying this is that article growth outpaces revenue growth. And that's basically a fact. And if you look at, if you look at the kinds of things, you know, Crossref kind of focusing over here, I'll talk a little bit about how there'll be more article growth from both regular articles and preprints, but also the artifacts that are associated with open science and the fact that publishers need to be able to deal with these things are going to basically intensify the need for the linking infrastructure and the need for persistent identifiers. And whatever we're doing now around the needs for content deposition and all that are going to explode, I think, in the next uh, era as we move into this open science era. So just a little bit about the what I think is driving the article growth is this transition to open access basically has changed kind of a fundamental about the economics of publishing. Um, in the open access era, there are marginal benefits to publishing new articles. In the old subscription era, it was mostly about quality. You, you wanted to reject as much as possible to drive up your impact factor and your quality so that your journals were more desirable to subscribers. And because of that shift in economics, publishers are publishing more. That's why you see more mega journals. You see more uh, attempts at the large publishers to place submissions within their portfolio because there's literally economic benefits to this. But then, you know, think about what's happening in Europe is basically we're shifting now into this world where people are subscribing to open access through read and publish deals. And you've got primarily this happening in one part of the world, which is Europe, which means that publishers have to exist in two economic models simultaneously as that high-quality output from Germany becomes free around the world, but most of the revenue comes from subscription model, publishers have to publish their way out of, their pro out of that problem. They have to publish more for the same top-line revenue. All of this is essentially putting more articles out there. And if you look at the last two years of article growth, OO stands for online open. That's our shorthand, but it basically means open access in subscription journals or otherwise known as hybrid journals. OA is driving this growth. So article growth might be relatively flattish at 3%, but OA is 8%. And this is, this is really a, a, a big dynamic at the large publishers. Preprints is another example of how our publishing output is going to expand really dramatically. So preprints were already growing 10 times faster than articles. This is cross-ref data. 24% growth rate compared to a 3% industry for overall for articles over that time period. But it's just beginning. Because this is still the community preprint era. This is archive that started in 1991, um, combined with you know, this new wave of community preprints like BioArchive. Um, and it's still, you can see how fast it's growing in 2018. But what's happening now is that publishers are integrating preprint into their workflow as business as usual. So you see this with Cell Press at Elsevier, where basically authors submit to Cell, but they have the option of simultaneously preprinting in SSRN. You see this happening with Research Squared at Springer Nature, this in-review product. Wiley's about to do this with Authoria, which is something that we acquired. Um, and I'm sure more and more uh, publishers will do this. But basically, when you offer to an author, a journal author who submits to a journal, if you offer them to simultaneously preprint that while you review it, getting about 35 to 40% of the authors are saying yes. So if you extrapolate this trend out, the amount of preprints are going to explode. Um, 
because basically publishers are going to be putting them on the preprints after the submissions come to the publishers. Just the, just the three market leaders, Elsevier, Wiley, Springer, Nature, if we were to do an under-review workflow across our whole portfolios with those kind of acceptance rates, I, we'd see about 900,000 new preprints. So this is just more about the stresses and demands that are happening to the infrastructure as a result of these open science changes. And then finally, this is kind of like my biggest area of interest is the artifact itself needs to change. So I look at like OA native publishers like eLife and Hindawi, they never had to go to print, never had to sell themselves to institutions, are able to innovate on new workflows that can better handle things like linked data, the modern kind of articles like our computational notebooks that you know, researchers need to use. This trend will just not be uh, isolated to just the open access publishers. This, this trend will be all the big publishers will need to follow this too. So the reproducible article of the future, once we figure out how to retool our infrastructure so that we don't use traditional typesetters or we don't have PDF first revision workflows uh, and we can actually handle linked data in code as submissions, um, we're going to have a different looking artifact. What we used to consider supporting information, which was data and supplemental data, will now be inter inter integral information into the article. This will be another force that intensifies the need for this common linking infrastructure and basically an explosion in the need for these sort of persistent identifiers and new kinds of policies that need to be sorted out going into the future. So when I think about cross drafts role, I really think about the future. I think about all this publishing, all this need for preprints, and then what the artifact itself is going to be going forward. Um, which kind of sets up, I guess, the heart of the large publisher reasoning about Crossref. Um, sorry, one second here. So publishers founded Crossref and they continue to drive its income. Um, but it is our best example by far of an organization that has moved our industry forward in the face of technology-driven opportunities. I think that quote that Ed had put up earlier of the original charter that said, not only is Crossref a linking service, this is the place where we are going to come together uh, to solve more of these needs. Um, and, I, and I think it's not just the large publishers that need to have these needs met. It's really important that Crossref continues to support the long tail of smaller publishers. In fact, I think that's key to its, its success. So this is a busy slide. But I'm basically just making the point here that I think it's pretty well understood that DOI deposition fees drive Crossref's income. Although it seems like maybe less so because of this huge diversity in membership growth over the years. But still, it's a major factor. Um, and within that, the short tail of the large content depositors still basically drive the overall economics. But many other stakeholders are deriving value from the Crossref ecosystem. And I think. You know, I, I think about the way this works. Think about a big, the, you know, the large publishers, the membership fees versus what they're paying for the content deposition fees. And I think of, you know, Elsevier. Elsevier and Clarivate probably spend around the same in terms of membership fees, but Elsevier has a content deposition bill that vastly dwarfs its membership fees because they publish lots of articles and need lots of DOIs registered. So there's, there's really an interesting dynamic about basically as we go into this future about how much content deposition fees and the cost of running that service um, 
can cross-pollinate all the activities and potential that Crossref has. So this is a graph that's essentially showing that Crossref's cost per DOI has been very flat, um, which is in a world where the costs of cloud computing have fallen dramatically. And we're also on the precipice of that red line for more DOIs going even further. And um, this is kind of this, so the, the thing that sets up. And I think, I think Ginny had made these points about how large publishers are starting to you know, think about this dynamic. And the other thing that's driving it, and this is the, the biggest point I want to get home today about publishers needing more than ever to work together, is that we have new funding demands for more common infrastructure and standards. Um, yet our landscape with which publishing industry can work together is becoming increasingly fragmented. So these are some of the problems um, that the publishing industry faces to be efficient and serve its customers better in a very sustainable way going forward. And yet we're kind of handling them in a, an increasingly large group of sort of forums to discuss them. We're getting to this place where almost every issue we need to solve in publishing gets its own single issue nonprofit spun up in order to solve it, which has a couple of problems. One is it's, it's very difficult to work across lots of, lots of these organizations. It's difficult for, for instance, technical talent to feel like they have a good career path when they work in a small nonprofit versus something like Crossref, which is really a dynamic place to work. Um, and I'm really just thinking about this. I think it is a true statement that publishers feel less comfortable bringing some of these issues to Crossref because of Crossref's stated mission around the linking service in the, in the metadata infrastructure as being its, uh, its real mandate. So I leave you with that thought. I mean, is Crossref a scholarly infrastructure provider or is it a publisher services organization? Um, I don't really have the answer to that question. Um, I just pose it annoyingly to you without, without resolving it. Um, but I think it, I think it really is, uh, it is one of the keys going forward um, to, to figure this out. Okay, so it looks like I have about two minutes, but I don't know if that's enough time for questions. Peter Lammers, uh, John Benjamins Publishing. I heard you say that for uh, publishers have to do more uh, with less money per article. More articles for the same revenue. Yes. But you're, I thought you were also saying Crossref uh, should uh, make DOIs uh, um, uh, less expensive. Uh, in the sense that the, 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 the cost has been constant, but they are also doing more for one DOI. I mean, there have been many more new services. So doesn't it, isn't it a comparable uh, situation? Um, I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is the, as Crossref expands into other areas, like the metadata service, um, the plagiarism detection service, fund ref, things like that. But it's still driven, the economics are still driven off of content deposition fees, which are gonna even be a bigger infrastructure need the way publishing is heading. Is that cross-pollinization a good thing? Have we lined up the incentives of Crossref with its funding priorities, which I think is key to its long-term sustainability? So I think this is one of our big, you know, one of the concerns I think about. Yeah. Where, where Crossref is, is heading. So I think mostly that, that, that 
slide about the cost per DOI is to show that it's not a gentle arc upwards of, of the cost to provide the DOI service. Actually, it goes down as those scale. So you know, that core linking service economics is increasingly unrelated to what Crossref's trying to accomplish with things like the metadata service. And I think aligning these priorities is gonna be, be one of the keys to keeping all the stakeholders happy. Okay, well thank you very much. Unlike um, Todd, I cannot speak on behalf of all medium-sized publishers, much as I would like to. So I'm, I'm, uh, um, um, I actually I started out my career with Elsevier on my uh, as a professional editor on my my favourite journal, um, and that was I had an experience of a large publisher there and um, learned a huge amount. And then I went to PLOS, um, and more recently at Hindawi. So I will be focusing uh, a little bit on us initially, um, but also. Uh, what I want to say and what I hope I, I managed to convey is, is, is something that, that resonates with, with uh, uh, some of the publishers and other stakeholders in the room. So the first thing is, is uh, we are an open access uh, publisher. We have been since 2007. We publish more than 20,000 um, articles a year. So I presume that's what put us in the middle size category. Um, we are open access, and for us, and like other native open access publishers, that means uh, no embargoes, free access, and reuse with a very <clears throat> liberal uh, license as long as the creator is um, uh, attributed properly and appropriately for that work. Um, as some of you know, we also have a radically open approach to developing infrastructure for open science. So it's not just about open access, it's about open source, open data, and in this context, it's about the metadata, which is a lot of what we're talking about today. But it is also about data sharing as well, uh, the larger issues. It's about open integrations, and it's about open contracts. Um, it's about no lock-in, and it's about transparency um, in our process and practice as well as in our outputs. And one of the things that Paul uh, said in this blog post was, that most of the data needed to support open science is controlled by commercial companies. I'd just like to take note here that we, we are a commercial company, both big and small. This growing reliance on a handful of companies to provide proprietary analytics and decision tools for research funders and universities poses serious risks for the future. Um, then I want to switch just with that in mind, to, to, to Crossref, and this is one of their um, new reporting tools, uh, which we love, because apparently Hindawi is the top of the league tables in terms of we, we make um, as much as possible open. Um, so, um, and I will talk about I4OC in a little bit, but um, actually Hindawi uh, didn't really need to join the campaign because it was already making its references open before then. Um, and. Uh, even down to 96% of our abstracts. Um, and there's actually, uh, I think, only about 4% of abstracts which are, are currently open available. And the reason why, um, and I, I think it's, it's, um, it, it's not just because we were a native open access publisher that we were able to take advantage of the sort of digital environment in a different way. I think there are plenty of open access publishers who, who can't. There are plenty of uh, uh, small open access scholarly publishers who don't have DOIs yet. 
um, when I was at PLOS and we were, we were, I, I was um, helping on the I4OC um, campaign, uh, we, we had to scramble a little bit to make sure that we, 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 we had all our references open before launch um, uh, and that sort of thing. So, I, you know, I think that there are, there are technical issues um, that face all publishers. Um, but the reason uh, we do it is it because it makes um, the content, the outputs, easy to discover, easy to access, it could be mined. And it's not just the services that Crossref provides, which are incredibly useful and point uh, to the integrity of what we're publishing, but it's, it, it's also out there for the Googles, the academia.edu's, um, the Bings, the, the, whoever, whoever needs to find scholarly information. Um, and this extends, our approach extends to open source in terms of the platforms and a very important part of that is about working with others and being collaborative and working with the community to create um, um, platforms and services um, and tools um, for, the, uh, um, for publishing and for, for scholarly communication. So I want to talk a little bit about the initiative for open citations. Um, and I think this is a sort of um, attention point. It's one of the things that, that, that uh, I mean, Crossref was a neutral party in this. Um, they facilitated it. Publishers just had to make their references open. Uh, but it, it sort of encapsulates some of the tensions that we're talking about um, today. And um, metadata was provided to Crossref. Lots of publishers didn't know that they could actually, it was, just, it was just closed by default, could make that metadata openly available. And so the campaign was just about letting uh, publishers know really that they could make that uh, metadata available like all the other meta metadata uh, that uh, Crossref provides. And um, we, we had a huge number of, of, of uh, support from uh, publishers and stakeholders, including every single size of publisher and, and, and very large publishers, um, um, like Wiley and Springer Nature, Taylor and Francis Sage, Sage and others. Um, everyone could see what the potential benefit, and I'm sure Ludo is going to talk about this uh, later. Um, and, and one of the, best, the benefits was best articulated, actually, um, uh, by the scientometric community. Uh, references are a product of scholarly work and represent the backbone of science, demonstrating the origin and advancement of knowledge and provide essential information for studying science and making decisions about the future of research. References are generated by the academic community and should be freely available to this community. And this is where I think scholarly publishing is different from other aspects of the publishing industry because the metadata is actually part of the scholarly knowledge and how how, how knowledge is exchanged depends on the metadata that we provide with our content. Um, I, and I don't think we can divorce um, research and publishing and the communication and exchange of scholarly knowledge. We can't separate them out because I think scholarly communication and publishing is actually a discipline within uh, scholarly practice uh, and research, and um, I'm, I'm sure, I'm hoping that Ludo will also speak to that. Um, but this is, this is where the tension is, and of the top biggest 
uh, 20 biggest publishers with citation data, now all but four, we've got about 55% now, and I can't remember how many billion references that represents, all but four make them available via cross-reference, and two represent scholarly societies. And there's, you know, there's, there's, they, ha they have sound reasons, commercial reasons, not to release these data. Um, now, I'll talk to that uh, a bit in a minute. In a minute. Um, but we also know, and this is where I'm, I'm talking a, a little bit about more of the middle-sized publishers, there are lots of learned societies who are really committed, actually, to making a transition to open access and to open science. Um, this is one that has literally sprung out of the woodwork in the past year, um, um, uh, precipitated a, a bit by Plan S, I think. Um, it's called the Society Publishers Coalition, and um, Stuart Taylor um, has helped uh, with, with um, others to form this group. And they share a common ambition to see an orderly and sustainable transition to open scholarship and to improve the efficiency of the scholarly communication ecosystem for the benefit of researchers and society at large in a fair and sustainable way. And, you know, I, I, think, I think that's that sort of says it all. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy, but there is a desire by publishers and by the, the learned publishers in the scholarly community um, um, to try and, and, and get, uh, to have some kind of shared common goal. And um, uh, I think uh, Stuart told me there are now 55 members, or they're all learned societies, they, some from the States um, as well, though it's mainly UK-based and all disciplines. So what is 21st century scholarly publishing? And so I think it's, uh, and this is, this is my definition, it's not anyone else, but I, I see it as a process and practice, a, a discipline in itself, that facilitates scholarship and the public exchange of scholarly knowledge. And it essentially does what scholars have, have been doing for hundreds of years, creating, discovering, and disseminating knowledge for the benefit of science and society. And I know this sounds like motherhood and apple pie. Um, um, but I do think, uh, you know, this is part of a, a global 21st century knowledge revolution, and we are part of that. Um, and I, I, I think it's actually hard. I think it's quite hard. Um, and the result has been uh, an increasing anger and polarization of the debate and the discussion. So open access versus closed access, green versus gold. You know, it happens within open, uh, the open uh, sort of access and open science movement. Good science versus open science, on the other hand. Um, arts, humanities, and social sciences versus science, technology, and I mean, biomedicine. It's all being led by a biomedical community. It's top-down funders are forcing us to do stuff versus bottom-up. It's academic freedom versus academic responsibility, commercial versus not-for-profit, um, pay-to-read versus pay-to-publish, global north versus global south. And I think these are all false dichotomies, all of them. Um, um, and it is not helpful to, to have that view uh, and, and if we want to actually manage this revolution um, and, and for the benefit of all of us um, to come at it uh, from a very polarised viewpoint. So what is 21st century scholarship? Who gets to decide? Probably not publishers. Um, I don't know. These are a few words I put down. Lots of groups are looking at this at the moment. It's global, collaborative, diverse, transparent, ethical, impactful, insightful. Um, it's essentially, it's, it's about a culture of knowledge, creation, curation, and communication that will ultimately reflect core shared values around the exchange and communication 
of uh, scholarly knowledge. Um, but I, there, are, there, are, there are plenty of groups and, 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 and experts working on this. And the other thing I want to say is that openness is not a panacea. Um, and that's the other thing. It's, it's, it's uh, thank you. Um, it's, um, it's, again, not a black and white argument. Openness is not a panacea if outputs then can't be trusted or reused by others. And so with openness comes responsibility. And I'm not going to focus much on this, but there are, there are plenty of aspects to openness which cause concern and which we have to be aware of as we transition to a more open, global, networked um, environment. The one I suppose I want to pick up on in, in, in reference to um, why we're here at this meeting is that uh, no matter how much information you put out there, it's not very useful and it can obscure if it isn't fair. Um, and you know, if we, ha if we release an avalanche of information in a format that cannot be mined, analyzed, or understood by others, there's no point putting it out there. And the metadata, the infrastructure, and the pipework that connects objects to articles, to outputs, to people, to funders, um, uh, and to others, it is part of that information that needs to be independently mined, analyzed, and understood by others. Those are as much scholarly outputs as the articles and data sets um, that are out there. So the bottom line, um, our view um, at Hindawi, um, and I think it reflects a, lo a lot of the, the sort of nat native open access publishers like uh, PLOS and others, uh, but it is not to be a gatekeeper to the exchange of scholarly knowledge, but a facilitator. And what we can do is we can aim to intrinsically align our interests with those of the research community who want to harness 21st technology. The only reason we're here is because it's feasible. We can do this. Um, I think commercial players have an absolutely vital role to play. I think large commercial players have a hugely important role to play. There's a massive amount of experience um, um, within those organizations. They've uh, Again, it's not black and white. They've invested a huge amount of time, effort, and money. I mean, when you think about the work that Elsevier done, has done on, on data linking and data citation and these types of things, there's a huge amount of experience there. Um, it's not either or, it's, it's and both. And can we, um, as a community of publishers or, or, or as a community of uh, publishing services, um, I don't know how you want to define a publisher uh, um, uh, these days, but can we be as open-minded and collaborative in our approach to publishing and scholarly comms as we ask um, others, and particular researchers, to be in theirs? So Crossref. And what are the practices, services, and tools that best support the publication and exchange of scholarly knowledge? Uh, and, and this, uh, an exchange, because I see, I see Crossref as, as the hub for exchange. It's like a massive junction box or this, this planet, solar systems, whatever. Um, but can Crossref adapt to this uh, changing technology and the tools that are out there uh, so that it benefits all its potential members, including the new entrants and OA publishers, whether large or small, commercial or not-for-profit. And then, um, I suppose, you know, the big elephant in the room is, should or is Crossref uh, being, or, or should Crossref be held up 
by the commercial interests of one or two large actors who want to ensure that the infrastructure and metadata is proprietary, if this is at the expense of competition, innovation, and ultimately science and society. And I don't think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think there's a place for uh, all of us to work together. And how, we can, how can we collaborate uh, to build on our strengths? Um, and there are issues, as Todd was saying, about governance and sustainability, and I'm just about finished. So, two wheel size change can only take place. This is Paul Aris for uh, Lero, where there's trust, collaboration, and a commitment to a shared vision for the future. Um, and um, that's what I hope one of the things that will come out uh, of, of this meeting with. And I think it is not open access or open science or even openness that is at the core of scholarly communication, but rigor, trust, diversity, inclusivity, collaboration, curiosity, and creativity, the things that make up scholarship itself. So how can we all work with Crossref to make that happen? Thank you. English is not my native language, so I hope you will understand me. Uh, and uh, first, I think it uh, will be um, nice if I explain what is Ukraine for Nauka because uh, we are not a publisher. We, make, uh, we are more like intermediate organization between our publishers in Ukraine and Crossref. Uh, why it is so, I will explain a little later. Okay, uh, the main objective to create Ukraine for Nauka in 2009 uh, was, uh, um, was aimed to create unified uh, space for uh, all scientists uh, to uh, simplify ordering and uh, to make a catalog of uh, scientific periodicals uh, to make uh, easier for people to, to order academic journals uh, and uh, other articles. So uh, we made our site on which we have a unified catalog. Here books, monographs, uh, scientific journals. And in uh, 2014, uh, we began to offer uh, services um, of assigning those. Uh, so we have uh, a section on our site where we uh, try to help our publishers to understand how to create website, uh, what they need to do, how to uh, deposit DOI, how to deposit it uh, for, uh, for an article, for a book, for a monograph, and other works. Uh, so... Uh, we began in 2014 as... Uh, cooperation with one organization, we had only one prefix, and we uh, cooperated only with uh, 10 journals, and we was a uh, Crossref member. Yeah, now, in uh, 2009, uh, we have uh, 21 organizations we work with, we have 22 prefixes, we have 162 journals, and we are Crossref sponsoring member. I know that uh, for somebody it is uh, not a huge amount, but uh, for us uh, in five years, it's uh, really a great work. And after the launch of the program, the, the initiative for open citations in 2017, 
uh, we opened uh, references for all our partners. Um, we are asking our partners to uh, upload references for all uh, work they depositing. And uh, the joining to Crossref stimulated uh, the creation of new sites because uh, most of the journals didn't have even a site. They was uh, they was only printed, and uh, they was uh, only in Ukrainian. So uh, many people understand now that they uh, should have a nice site. They should have a translation to English. Uh, they uh, should use a reference list formatting as, uh, as it is in worldwide. And uh, of course, uh, that leads uh, our journals to, um, to value more uh, reviewing, plagiarism checking, uh, to make our articles uh, more higher level. So we demand uh, we demand uh, after DOE signing. We demand uh, also reference uh, depositing, and uh, now uh, we want to send Crossref for new metadata manager. We already tried to use it, and uh, our partners already start to using it. Uh, this uh, application is really great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, as for help we provide for our partners, it's uh, methodological literature. Uh, we publish little books, like this one in my hand, uh, where we try to uh, keep all information, publish a need for creating site, for assigning it, for using applications uh, like uh, web deposit form and uh, metadata manager. Uh, also, we uh, hold seminars and conferences once per year. It's a great conference in Ukraine, which is uh, organized by National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Uh, after this conference, we uh, publish a bigger book uh, where all information that was there is uh, printed to uh, make uh, other people who are interested, but uh, they uh, could not uh, to go to us, <laughs> they can read it. Uh, also, we provide technical support. Uh, we try to keep in touch with all our partners to help them if they have some errors during depositing, if they have some questions uh, that could be in person or uh, via phone, via email. Uh, we try to help our people <laughs> as we can. Uh, also, about um, Billion. Uh, it's a um, hard question for uh, Ukrainian journals because uh, some time ago our government uh, they uh, made a law um, that governmental organization can't pay in uh, other countries' uh, currency, only in Christmas. So we like intermediary between our publishers and Crossref with uh, these billion questions. Uh, and I think this is it. Thanks for your attention. I'll be happy to, ask, uh, to answer your questions.
little bit perspective from a funder. And good news first. As a funder, we, when a grant is approved, we ask grantees to report publication to us. Uh, and therefore, we collect uh, publications in our system. Uh, in the last, let's say, eight years, we collect about this number of publications. And the good news is really that after correcting and filling out missing UIs, we have a percentage of 85% uh, publications having UI. This includes all type of publication. It also might include some duplicates where a publication is assigned to two grants. But actually, this is, I think this is really good news. Not all credit goes to Crossref, I have to say, because when you look at the agencies behind these DOIs, it's 99% Crossref. And then you have this kind of troublesome, troublesome in the, in the hand in, in to say, let's, it's very hard to deal with those um, DOIs from other agencies because we have a REST API, or we have integrated REST API, and when people enter the DOI from another agency, it, does not happen anything because there are, we, we, we just use Crossref. And I'm really glad that at least uh, the confusion between Crossref and data side has been, um, let's say, not totally resolved, but there's now this message out that Crossref and data side recommends to assign DOIs from Crossref for primary um, research outputs like journal articles. Um, regarding the business model, um, at the SNF we finance pure gold OA. Um, you see here a chart from the OpenACPC project, which is also based on Crossref data. And we assume that the costs uh, for uh, Crossref assigning DOIs is included in the APC, so we pay indirectly for that. We do that as well as for books and book chapters, where we also fund gold open access. And here we also have gone uh, even further. So anyone who wants money for gold open access books has to assign DOIs. This means the problem here was we had to deal with often small publishers, which haven't even published electronically. And for us, it was when we fund something, we want greatest visibility as possible, and therefore we acknowledge that DOIs is clearly the way to go. So one, I think these guidelines has also resulted to some new gains in smaller publishers uh, becoming member at Crossref. Then another part which I really like it is this kind of, of funding or funder search. I think this is never something he has asked for. It somehow was there. We could go there and could enter our name, and we found out, okay, we are in there, and we have identifier there who has done that. And it's really great. And last year, I did an analysis. So I downloaded all publications which with funding organizations, um, my funding organization was in there. And you clearly can see it's, it's more and more content in there. And what I can say, because I, we think we have about roughly 10,000 publications a year, I would say there is about 60% of the publications having funding information in the metadata from Crossref. Maybe just a comparison when we look at 
this number in dimensions, um, we get to about 90%. So I would say there is about 30% um, of publication having funny acknowledgement, which is not yet in the metadata from uh, Crossref. I would like to see that to switch, not, not that a proprietary uh, company has to do text mining to find that out. I would like to see that, to see that in, in Crossref. Also, going more into the detail, looking at these uh, numbers, I mean, what, what I did is, is looked at the numbers, and I can say for 27%, 72%, sorry, there is specific award information which we can use and map to the grant we have in our list. And then there are 23% where there is just like it's funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation, but there is no award information. I mean, the author probably has uh, not acknowledged a specific grant. And then there are these ugly 6% where there is a number, like funded by Swiss National Science Foundation and the number, but I have no idea what grant these references to in my database. Um, and I think therefore it's, it's also uh, confirming this initiative going on and, and, and uh, Crossref, this grant identifier, grant identifier Crossref. Uh, I've been there in the technical uh, advisory group um, for, for, or for, for, for this initiative. And I, I think also we at SNF are really open for participation in this initiative, uh, also for financially contributing to, to Crossref so that we can push all the grant data to Crossref, which then would enable publishers and repositories, think about research data repositories and other, other users to uh, create reliable links between grant and research output. Uh, here at the right side, I, I, I published a, a really nice application currently on Figshare, which is based on, on uh, grant data from Dimensions. And I would like to see that uh, something based on or, or based on Crossref data at the end when funders have contributed the data to Crossref. So it's really everyone can use that uh, publisher repositories uh, and attribute um, grants from a specific list. And my last say is uh, I think funders becoming um, more and more aware what Crossref is doing. I think Mostly it's known, okay, there are GOIs out there. Most people don't know, really know what is really, or how rich the metadata of Crossref already is. Um, what I also see is that the Crossref is so often the, the source for so many applications. I mean, there are so many projects out there and you see, okay, the, the base data is from, from Crossref and also for text data mining, I think Crossref has good solutions. And therefore, I am really in favor of, let's strive for quality at, at the source. Uh, what I also see that there's a lot of applications coming downstream, using data from Crossref, doing stuff which I think should be done at the first place at Crossref, like adding funding information, like in dimensions, when they do text mining and get uh, information. I would like to see that happening in in, um, in uh, the, the data from, from Crossref, as well as, uh, let's say, adding ORCIDs for offer where this is not, where it's not in Crossref yet. This often happens in other um, 
repositories, for example, and therefore we lose a lot of information there. And also regarding the business model, I think as funder we are interested, I mean, we fund, so this is the idea that we pay money and we would like to maximize the profit for all. So um, I would like to see Crossref really continue or, or even become more open and also find um, sources to cover the costs. Maybe not the profit, but cover the costs. And I think funders are, are open to do that, especially now with this grant, identi grant identifier initiative. Yes. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Ludo Waldman from the Center for Science and Technology Studies at Leiden University here in the Netherlands. Um, and I'm, let's say, a scientometrician. I'm someone who studies science based on all kinds of data sources, data sources that inform us about what is going on in science. And data about scholarly outputs, publications and other types of outputs is, of course, a key resource for, for people like me. And from that point of view, I would like to share with you my perspective on what Crossref is doing. I will try in a kind of humble way to make some recommendations to Crossref on what perhaps could be done in the future, could get more priority. Um, I would like to start by something that, of course, you're all familiar with, and it was also mentioned by Catriona, um, Initiative for Open Citations. Uh, a development that has been very important for uh, my community, for the Scientometric community. So this is something you all know. It's nowadays almost 60% of the citations in Crossref being open. Uh, that's a great development, something that Scientometricians are very happy with. And indeed we wrote this letter that Katriona also showed, this letter where we express our support for open citations, but in which we also explain why we feel this is, this is important. Um, so partly it is about uh, enabling a larger community of researchers to do scientometric analysis. So having many more people worldwide being able to do scientometrics, to study how the science system is, is operating, to think about ways in which we can improve the system. Partly it is about uh, improving the reproducibility of scientometric research. But this is also for me very much about applications of scientometrics, for instance in research evaluation. Open citations is a way to make research evaluations more transparent. And in the end that will lead, I believe, to more responsible ways of uh, evaluating research based, for instance, on, on citation data. So I myself, one thing I'm doing is I'm developing a software tool. This software tool is called uh, FOSViewer or VOSViewer. It's a tool for creating visualizations of science based on bibliographic data, data about uh, scientific outputs and in particular scientific publications. And I want to show you the thing we made. Um, I did that together with my colleague, Nation van Eck. And what we made is... Um, support for working with Crossref data in our software tool. Uh, so in the tool you have uh, something like this, you can query Crossref interactively um, and then through the API of Crossref all the uh, relevant bibliographic data is downloaded and you are then able to create all kinds of visualizations, network visualizations based on that data. Um, so here we are searching for publications in the journal, Scientometrics, from the past 10 years. 
And then, for instance, we can get a visualization of a co-authorship network. So the researchers publishing in this journal and all their um, collaborative relationships. This is another possibility. You could create a citation network. This is the citation network of, of scientific journals based on all the citation links that we could get from Crossref. This is hundreds of millions of citation links. So we got all these citations through the API. Um, we made the journal citation network, and then we visualized it. And then you get this. So we see in the top, we see uh, biological journals, uh, medical journals. At the right, you see uh, physics journals, chemistry journals. In the, in the bottom left, you see social science journals. Um, this is something that we could make, but this is something that anyone can make, because this is open data, open data in Crossref, and I believe it's a great development that over the past two years this has become possible, thanks to Crossref, but also, of course, thanks to all the publishers that have, have made this possible. It's really great. And to show you how happy I am with this, let me show you a picture of myself. <laughs> yeah. So, as a professor, you sometimes need to wear these uh, strange uh, things, and I don't like that. But to make a bit of fun and, and feel more at ease, I carry with me half a billion of citation links. <laughs> and, well, this is my way of showing basically how much I value what, what, what all of you have been doing over the past two years. It's really, really uh, very important and a great development. So now, let me go to some things that I think deserve attention. Um, sometimes I learned over the past two years there are um, technical problems problems related to the core infrastructure provided by Crossref. Um, for instance, we have this uh, under-reporting of matched references. So there was a problem in the uh, citation links that we could get through the API. Citation links were missing. Um, I must say, this was a bit disappointing. So you make these nice visualizations, then you find out that a significant number of citation links are missing. Um, of course, you want this data to be reliable. It's, that's, that's important. Um, this is something at, at the right, something that happened more recently. So problems with the API, um, querying, searching for uh, um, titles of articles, some technical problem, um, which now, for instance, means that users of, of, of my software tool, FOSViewer, are unable to, do, uh, to search based on titles of articles. They will get some error message, it, it doesn't work. Um, so that's another problem of uh, another illustration of problems with the with the infrastructure. Uh, there are a few more like inconsistencies between uh, uh, XML and JSON output, all quite technical things, but things that I believe should really be be be, be addressed. We all, of course, want to have full confidence in in what we get out of the APIs. Uh, that's that that's important. Another thing uh, is this: uh, Bianca Kramer, who is well, who's not in the room, but she is here at this event. Um, she helped me to make this slide. Uh, Bianca Kramer um, uh, collected some statistics on the availability of abstracts in Crossref. This is probably not a surprise for most of you. So when we look at journal articles in the past three years, we see that we have abstracts only for 15% of, of, of these journal articles. Um, so most of you, most of the publishers, do not yet deposit abstracts in Crossref. Um, and I, feel, I, I believe that's a pity, because there's so much value in these abstracts. It's like the citations, it's equally important. The abstracts are, for instance, important to do uh, proper information retrieval. We, 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 we need to have them. And also the content of publishers will, of course, benefit from this. It will become uh, more easy to discover. So this is something where I hope 
Crossref working together with publishers can um, yeah, make steps in improving the situation, in uh, improving the completeness of metadata. Um, so these are some publishers that uh, are making abstracts available, at least for a certain share of their, their content in, in, in Crossref, the bigger, the bigger publishers. But there are also many big publishers not in this, in this chart, so they don't make abstracts available. And I hope, I hope we can all work together to, to um, improve this situation. It's, as I already mentioned, it is as important as the citation data. Um, and also, if we don't do this, something else is going to happen. What you see over here is the same publications, the same journal articles from the past three years. And now we see how abstracts can be obtained, not from Crossref, but from The Lens, which you may know is a website and a database that also makes all kinds of bibliographic data available. It's to a large extent based on Microsoft Academic Graph. Um, so Microsoft is crawling the web and they find many different versions of the same article and if one of these versions has an abstract that's what they take and that's what they make available. So we see 60% of abstracts can be obtained from the lens. Um, so basically if we don't solve this problem in a kind of neat, properly organized way through Crossref, then it is going to be solved in a kind of more messy and, 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 and unorganized way, for instance, by, by Microsoft, by the lens. Um, I would prefer the more structured, uh, the, the, the more clean solution. Um, so that's another point. I really hope that here Crossref, together with all of you, can, can make step forwards. And then we have all these, all these nice initiatives. Um, I have learned more and more about all of this. I believe this is all very important, very nice work. Uh, you know, of course, about these initiatives. I don't need to tell you anything about it. Um, well, there is this, this, this ROAR uh, initiative, a research organizations uh, registry. That one, I believe, is in particular important. So you all know that we have this, this, this big problem of university rankings being so dominant in our research system. Many universities um, basing their, 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 their important decisions, their policies, to a significant extent on how they perform in the rankings. Um, it depends a bit on the country, but in many countries we have this issue. And this is a problem in itself. And then on top of that, we have the problem of these rankings being uh, non-transparent. It's really not clear how they are produced, how the data is obtained, whether the data is reliable. So many of these rankings produce bibliometric statistics, citation statistics, but we don't know how they actually define the organizations, the, the universities, how they link publications to these universities. It's all a black box. Uh, and that's really a big problem when you realize how much depends on these university rankings. So ROAR potentially could solve a problem like that, could make these rankings more transparent, could enable all of us to debate whether or not we like these statistics that the rankings present. Um, could also enable more people to uh, develop alternative types of statistics so that we can also have discussions about um, different ways of, of, of um, uh, looking at the performance of universities. This is all important. This is also very difficult. At my center, we are doing this already for two decades. Linking publications to organizations, to universities, it's extremely challenging. It takes a lot of resources if you want to do it carefully. So that's also something that we need to be aware of. And that brings me to my three recommendations. So the first one is perhaps the most important one. Uh, make sure your basic infrastructure is uh, working well. So that's the recommendation I want to make to Crossref. Uh, the second one, um, work together with 
publishers uh, to increase completeness of metadata, this should really be a collaborative effort, and I hope that can be realized. So I showed you the abstracts, but of course, the same point can be made for the affiliations, for license data, and so on. And the third one, for Crossref, participate in initiatives for improving and enriching uh, metadata, but also, and that's of course the other side, we need to think about developing fair models for funding and sustaining these initiatives. So I mentioned this building such a research organization registry. If you want to do it properly, it is a big effort and it takes a significant amount of resources. And I think it's a fair question to ask how that should be funded, how that should be sustained. And I hope we can also have discussions about that today and tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our podcast contributors. Vanessa Dubuker from Amsterdam University Press. Maxim Mitrovanov from Nikon. James McKee from Altum. Mohamed Mustafa from Knowledge E. Heather Staines from MIT Knowledge Futures Group. Christine Ferguson from Embley EBI. Dan Smith from Welcome. Duncan Campbell from Wiley. Lauren Danahy from Brill. Gareth Malcolm from Turnitin. Lisa Schiff from California Digital Library. Christian Goodnick from SNSF. Fresh Mashake from Springer Nature. See you at a Crossref Live near you soon. <laughs>